Acts chapter 1. The Bible says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akladama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word, and let's us pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. Lord, we understand our removal not only in time and in geography but Lord in just the distance culturally speaking that would help us know what is taking place Lord bless our study our comparison of scripture with scripture and then Lord we ask that your Holy Spirit come alongside and illumine our understanding such that we can obey be better men and women, children of God, because of your instruction. Teach us today. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So what we just read is an interlude. An interlude is a fancy way of saying basically a pause, usually between two notable events. And in this case, what we studied last week with the ascension of Jesus, that's a major mile marker on the road of history known as the story of Jesus. And then next time when we open into chapter 2, we're going to be reading of how the Holy Spirit came down to earth, demonstrated by flaming tongues of fire. That also major mile marker. 
But between those two is 10 days where the disciples were told to do what we all love to do, to wait. Stay where you are. Don't go anywhere, but wait. Wait and pray. Search the scriptures. Be together, but just wait. So what we've got here sandwiched between these two major events that I'm sure would easily be categorized as high adventure. You have waiting 10 days worth. And I'm sure if we were chopping this up into episodes in a series, while the other two might be acclaimed critically as much watch or must watch TV, I guess that's how they put it. This one's probably going to get skipped. And I usually don't like to meddle too much into other pulpits or ministries and how they teach, but I would think that if there were deep tracks or B-sides of well-played records from pastors and eras gone past, chapter 1 might get a lot of play, chapter 2, but the bottom of chapter 1, this is probably skipped over, which is it's a tragedy for a number of reasons. One, we're not watching TV. We're reading our Bibles, which is inscripturated revelation of God to man. And when you've got Luke, who went to pains to explain that in his accounting of things for the most excellent Theophilus, so that you may be certain of the things which are taught, he considered this to be important enough to write it down. And amazingly enough, 2,000 years later, you're holding it in your lap. So this is not only old stuff, and it's not only good stuff, it's revelation directly from God. And then I also kind of chuckle because remembering going through Scripture, there are certain passages that little boys who color crossword puzzles or whatever else and try their best to understand and pay attention, every now and then you get to hear about someone bursting open <laughs> and bowels gushing out. I don't know if that's in any of the coloring books or not. <laughs> but if I was making one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd certainly want to put that in there. If only to make people go, who put this together? <laughs> Luke did in Scripture. So what did these men do while they waited? That's the first matter of business in verse 12. They went back to Jerusalem. So if the former episode ended standing on the Mount of Olives looking into heaven, watching Jesus disappear, and two men, we usually call angels, saying, why are you watching? He's coming right back. Well, what did they do next? They went back home. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. You would have to be a Jew to understand what a Sabbath day's journey is because there were limits on how far you could walk on a Sabbath and the limits were somewhere around two-thirds of a mile. And that would only take you, I don't know, about 15 minutes to walk. And that's about the distance from the Mount of Olives back into the city of Jerusalem. Specifically, they were headed to the upper room. That word there, the upper room, kind of distinguishes it from any old upper room. May have been the upper room where the Passover was uh, observed, what we would call the Last Supper. 
And we'll see this later when the Holy Spirit falls. But this is the place where they were staying. These rooms were usually rented out as public spaces for purposes such as gathering. It's got at least a capacity to fit 120 people. We read that number a moment ago. And what was nice about them is that being an upper room, they were positioned above the noise of the street down below, and you were able to have at least some modicum of privacy. Then we're given a roster here, a list of names, not unlike the list of names Luke gave us in his gospel or John or Matthew or Mark. This one, the names have been reordered somewhat. And it seems as though Luke is ascribing prominence by the order of the names as they are mentioned. We're going to see a lot of the ones we read first, more so than the ones we read last. Peter and John and James and Andrew, those four seem to be grouped. Then you have Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, and then three, James, Simon, and Judas. And the important thing to note is that is not Judas Iscariot. Some references and places use just that terminology. Judas, not Iscariot. That man is no longer living. And then we're told what they're doing. Look at verse 14. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is one of those verses that was also, I don't know if you've ever heard so many preachers jokes but that you can tell the apostles drove imports particularly manufactured by Honda that they were all in one accord and even as a as a as a kid i would just sit and go it's it's they were with one accord maybe standing next to one but not in one and you can't get 12 in there it's just not funny is what I remember thinking. But so far, at least as much can be said that these men and women were obedient. They were doing what they had been told to do by Jesus. They were waiting and they were together. Verse 14 has them both. They're waiting, but one accord of one mind. There's no disagreement as to what they should be doing as they wait. And while the hours pass, for ten days, they persist in prayer. That's what that word one accord means. They persisted in the same plan together perpetually. Now, they slept, they ate, they drank. There's a portion here where Peter begins to talk, and they handle an issue that needs to be resolved. But continually, consistently, perpetually, for these ten days, they prayed. And also, tucked away in that verse, verse 14, we notice that there's already been a revolution of sorts. The women had a place to pray at the synagogue, but it was separated from the place where the men were to pray. Same was true at the temple. Uh, The women were able to pray in a section of the courtyard Uh, that was closer to the holy place than the Gentiles were able to pray in the courtyard, but further away than where the men were able to pray in the courtyard. 
But when we read this, we read that the disciples in the upper room prayed with the women. And where would this have come from? The man that they've spent three years with. They were shocked when they found him speaking to a woman at a well in Sychar. And then were shocked as men came out of the city to hear about this man who had changed this woman's life, told everything that she'd ever done, and was now in possession of living water. So you'll see these differences as things change going through these chapters in the book of Acts, how the church is a lot different than even the tenets of Judaism. So corporate prayer would define these 10 days. We need to make sure we understand that, and Luke is, is making sure that that's clear. Uh, this begins with what will become an established pattern as we read on. And here's the pattern. We'll look for it. We'll mention it as we see it. But whenever God starts calling his people to prayer, something big is about to happen. Whether that be the giving of the Holy Spirit 10 days from here, or whether that be the release of his apostles from prison, or whether that be a movement within certain churches as the gospel reaches from not just Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, but other uttermost parts of the world, it always seems to be prompted. The major mile markers involve God's people called to prayer. And it, it, it almost is an inseparable Reality throughout the book. We ought to make sure that we never forget that as well. So the prelude to God's calling his people to prayer or this movement of the Holy Spirit, this is the prelude. But before we get to chapter 2, what's left of chapter 1, having read down to verse 15, is this dilemma that must be addressed, and that is a replacement for Judas. What do we do? He must be replaced. So in those days, verse 15, Peter stood up among the brothers. Uh, the company of persons was in all about 120. Your translation may have brackets around there. So that's Luke kind of hitting the pause button on the narration to say, oh, by the way, that's about 120. And you'll notice when we get down a little further, all that about Judas and what happened to him, there's parentheses. You push the pause button in the story and say, well, let me tell you what happened to this guy named Judas that Peter's talking about. When you get to verse 16, Peter calls them brothers and then says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So very clear theology from Peter's mind as to the importance of the role of scripture. What he's describing here is pre-written history. Now, Judah's name was not mentioned in these psalms that he's going to quote. But there are places in prophecy where the enemies of Christ are mentioned and what will happen to them and what needs to be done as a result. So what Peter is reading in the Old Testament, he's saying, now we have a fulfillment. His name is Judas. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And that's probably the first whiff of, of the difficulty that comes in even untangling prophecy, which is part of God's plan for how this story of his created world plays out. 
But to say even after it fell apart, at least for Judas' case, he had a part, a share in this ministry. He's turned away from it. So someone else must take his place that God's plan go on. Not that it'll crumble if we don't do anything. It's going to be made abundantly clear that God's word gets its witness no matter what happens. But they've got something to do here. Now, if you have a King James Version, among the translations, uh, I'm reading from the ESV. I checked with the uh, New American Standard Bible, the Revised Edition Uh, as well as the NIV. I think it is the King James Version that's different than the rest in saying there in the parentheses that this was 120 disciples. So these aren't just people they gathered off the street. They actually carry the term disciple. And we talked about this a couple of Wednesday nights ago in the Bible study. There's a difference between the term disciple and apostle. Disciple is a very generic term which basically just means a student or a follower. And Jesus had lots of them. There are 120 of them in this room. And there was a point where he sent 70 of them out for an, an, an errand, you might say. There's a place where Paul's going to mention that 500 people see Jesus at once. He had lots of disciples But he only had a few apostles. And we're going to make that distinction that Jesus is talking uh, through these men and through the difference that is the office of an apostle. An apostle is something totally different. But if you want to make a note here and look at this later, I'll read it to you now. You don't have to turn there. But this is Luke in his gospel in chapter 6, same author that's writing Acts. And he's telling us that on one occasion in these days, he, that's Jesus, went out into the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, it's the next morning, he called his disciples... And chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. You get the distinction there. A disciple's one thing, but out of that mob of disciples, followers, students, Jesus called twelve and gave them a different set of credentials. An apostle is an ambassador commissioned by a ruler and given designated credentials to speak in that ruler's name and with his authority. So Peter's not talking about replacing a disciple. He's talking about replacing an apostle. And this is huge only because the apostles had certain minimum requirements that gave them credentials unlike anyone else to bear witness to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Star witnesses, complete with the authority to speak on his behalf. So Luke includes this editorial comment right in the middle here after Peter has said we need to replace an apostle. And really, verse 18 and 19 are better known because of the discrepancy they uh, raise between the gospel of Matthew and what it says about Judas. Now, the discrepancies come at least in in three ways. 
And I don't see them at all as difficult as some might want to suggest. But it has to do with who paid for the field, how did Judas die, and why was the field called the field of blood? Because if you go to Matthew, he specifically says that Judas hung himself. And it would seem, if you're listening to Matthew, that that's how he died. Also, it specifically says that Judas threw the money on the ground after he was remorseful. And that the men gathered it up and rather than to put it into the treasury, bought a field with it. And they called it the field of blood. And as far as how he died, um, what we just read a moment ago, which doesn't sound like one might survive any more than a hanging is uh, winding up in two pieces. Now, the way the commentators, the scholars, want to try to get both people on the same page is first to remind us, if you've got an accident scene and two people are watching it, they're going to write things from their perspectives that aren't necessarily untrue, but from the way they looked at it. Now, it would not be unheard of to say that it was Judas's money that was thrown on the ground, that they weren't going to put it in the, on deposit at the temple and bought that field with it in his name. So Luke isn't breaking any rules than to say, yeah, that's him. That's what it was bought for. And then as far as why was it called the field of blood? Well, one might say because it was bought with blood money. One might say it was because it was covered in blood. And then others would say, we really don't know how Judas went about what he did. Maybe he didn't do a good job. Maybe the tree limb rotted and broke off. Maybe he rotted and broke off from the rope. There's lots of ways that both of these things could be true. But from the perspective of Matthew, it seems that all is necessary is to say that that's the end of that. Where from the perspective of Luke, it seems that he puts this parenthesis in here to say, and he was punished for it. This is what happens based on prophecy to the enemies of God. We'll get to that in here in just a moment. Not only is the office replaced, but the camp becomes desolate and no one dwells in it. I think that is sufficient and suffices to take care of what some might say. Well, well, you know, you had two people and they're, they're not on the same page. They're on the same page. So Peter not only sees the apostasy of Judas as fulfillment of Scripture, but also replacement is fulfillment of Scripture. And at this point in the commentaries and study for this, I saw a lot of different ways that people would talk about Judas as a person, whether or not we should feel sorry for Judas and pity his position as one who's prophesied to betray his Lord. Or should we look at this as someone to disdain? He gets what he deserves. He's not like us at all. Or someone to try to analyze and see if we can find ourselves in him. None of us want to be Judas, even if we see Judas-like tendencies in our hearts. But I thought probably most interesting is what John Calvin said about the man. John Calvin, who's known for his emphasis on the sovereignty of God, 
What he said is that Judas may not be excused on the ground that what he did was prophesied, since he fell away not only because of prophecy, but namely because of the wickedness of his own heart. The Bible is explicitly clear that wickedness is punished unless that wickedness is covered by the blood of someone more righteous, perfect, And what else may be said about Judas, we'll come back to this. What's abundantly clear is that he did not believe. And to not believe is to be condemned already. So it's an awful story. When we get to the portion where we're asking ourselves, well, what do we do with all this? We'll come back to that. But look at what Peter pulls from the Psalms as far as his basis for what they are about to do. He says... For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That has been fulfilled. And let another take his office. That will shortly come to pass. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism, that's one requirement, of John until the day when he was taken up from us. That's another requirement. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That is the articulation of this apostolic commissioning, which is a third requirement. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They have two candidates among this 120 And we've got other uh, early church fathers who say that both of these men were part of the 70 that's mentioned elsewhere. And let me just give you those three requirements again. One, he had to be a disciple from the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized in the Jordan. When John the Baptist introduced the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, and when he got into the water with the rest of these who are repenting, and he doesn't need to repent, and John knows this, And he's the one who says, this is wrong. It should be backwards. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, let it be so for now because it's fitting for all righteousness. What in the world did that mean? What it meant was, I'm here to identify as the sinner who needs repentance. And I'll keep that position of humility all the way to the cross when I do that very thing. So he needed to be there when that happened. And then he also, number two, had to have been an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection after his death and his burial, but now he's alive. This apostle is going to need to have seen both of those things and been there through the middle of it all, too. And then the last point, he has to be commissioned by Jesus himself. So an apostle then... And just try to think through this, just to make sure we know what this office is and how important it is and and why everything we know about Jesus, heaven, hell, and everything in between is based off the veracity of these men and their report. An apostle was not just some ecclesiastical functionary. That sounded fancy, didn't it? Ecclesiastical functionary. What's an ecclesiastical functionary? A pastor, a priest, a monk. You know, these things over time as religion develops, some way off the scriptures, some. But 
a, a position. We find in Scripture, in the pastoral epistles and through the book of Acts, qualifications for and job descriptions of ecclesiastical functionaries, elders, pastors, deacons, and so forth. This is not what he's talking about. Those have their place, and they're very important, but it's not an apostle. Nor is this just any recipient of the gospel. Peter's going to haul off and preach the first Christian message in chapter 2, and 3,000 souls are going to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, be wondrously saved, and are able then to tell that gospel to someone else. So that's not it either, just that you have the gospel and can share the gospel. Nor is it even a bearer of the gospel message, someone who evangelistically makes it a point to tell as many people as they possibly can about the gospel. That's not even what it is to be an apostle. An apostle, and I'm going to have to give you a a technical term here, but I think it helps paint the picture, was the guarantor of the gospel message. A guarantor is a legal word. Sometimes you'll see it in all caps on the legal stuff. You have to sign a bunch of times. Financially speaking, uh, a guarantor would be one who would guarantee Alone, should the borrower go broken and bust and default. Basically, it's just a way of saying someone that guarantees the veracity, guarantees the quality, uh, guarantees the truthfulness of a testimony. The only ones qualified to certify the gospel as true and write it down in words that we're reading this morning are those qualified in those three ways. They were there when Jesus started his ministry. They were there when he ended his ministry. And during that ministry, he called them out and swore them in as his witnesses, his apostles. Now, what that means is uh, there aren't any more. And these are all dead. I've got their writings, copies of their writings. But if you ever go down the road and you pass a church and it says pastor apostle such and such I hate to disagree but I must there's no such things and then some who want to be cute might say well what about Paul the apostle he wasn't there at the baptism and he wasn't there at the, the resurrection but he was there on the Damascus road where Jesus himself spoke why are you doing this blinded him, and then sent him where? To Jerusalem, to the other 12. And they're going to check you out. And it's going to be a grueling process. And then there's this business of three years out in the desert we don't know anything about. But he's the only exception. And because those 12 couldn't check any others out after their death, they're all gone. And interestingly enough, when James is the first apostle to die, he's not replaced. Because his ministry was complete. Judas abdicated his position. That's why he is replaced. So verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. Very specific there. From which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots. The lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven as the twelfth man. 
That's the last time you'll see lots used in the scriptures. Because when you flip your page to chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and things are different. But let's ask ourselves, all right, what do we do with this? Or maybe you want to put it, what's in this for me? I think I understand what was going on for them. What implications or applications does this have for us? First of all, I thought it might be helpful at least to give a few words about what to do with the problem of Judas. Mention that we would come back to this. Luke tells us that Judas turned away to his own place. Now that's likely a euphemism for hell. I think it's more poetically put here, euphemism or not, because it seems to point to his position away from all the others. He was a chosen an apostle. And now he's not. His position has been taken by someone else. I mean, what may be said or not said about the condition of this man's heart, just to hear those words said about him seems to be the exact fulfillment of that prophecy. He's got no part. Whatever they are, he is not anymore. He's gone to his own place. Which is probably, I think, another way to describe the horrors of hell. It's not with God and his people. It's away from all that. In your own place. Kind of evokes some of the things, uh, you know, in Lewis's work, The Great Divorce of the rending of relationships away and what happens is people move further and further and further away from anyone else because that's the epitome of of hell. I don't want to be with anybody but myself. Now, it's all completely allegory and a fictional work, but what we know about Judas is only what we know about because Scripture has told us and including these other men, we never have such privileges in our own life. I mean, think about that. The Bible tells us that Judas went to his own place. Nowhere in the Scriptures, other than a few places with some of the patriarchs and the prophets, are we given any information as to the whereabouts of a human being once dead and gone. Other than if you believe, you're with me. Even if it's at the last minute, today you'll be with me in paradise. But as far as mom, dad, husband, wife, and that's all because we can't read each other's minds, and that's the way God left it, right? Which I believe is, is mercy. It's bad enough that I know my own mind, and it'll lie to me. But to... Offer that up for, uh, I don't know, people to scroll through. The thoughts that run through, my, I can't think of nothing worse. Death would be better. But in this case, we're given a glimpse into this man's mind. And theologically, here's three things that, that I think help us digest some of this. The first one's probably the toughest to swallow. As far as Judas, God was doing something that was necessarily involved in his plan. 
Put it in other words. It was part of God's plan that Judas betray Jesus. That's tough. It, it, it's hard to say, well, okay, well then uh, Judas is off the hook because he couldn't help it. Well, you got Mr. Sovereignty himself who says, no, it was the wickedness of, of his own heart for which he was responsible. So that right there is probably one of the most glaring uh, examples of trying to figure out where on the scale between human responsibility and God's sovereignty we want to account for this. Is it part of God's plan? Yes. Is Judas responsible for it? Yes. How can that both be true at the same time? That's the mystery of God and it's his business at the moment. And what's even more shocking, here's the second idea. The disciples had no clue it was going to happen. They're going around the table saying, is it me? Except for one who said, it'll never be me. And he got taught his lesson in triplicate as he denies his Lord three times. But they didn't see it coming. And people who split churches wide open or people who sit under the ministry of mortal men who look to be put together only to find out in scandal fashion that they've been a fake, a fraud, and a phony, much like everyone else who needs Jesus. But it just destroys our understandings of the way people are and how they're supposed to act and why they acted or why they didn't. God was doing something that was necessary to his plan. The disciples had no clue it was going to happen until it did. But Scripture helped them figure it out in the end. Now you say, well, it's cheating because you know, they had prophecy to help them. Well, we have access to the same pro- prophecy. We have access to the same things in Scripture that talk an awful lot about the human condition and depravity, sinfulness, grace, all these things. So let's take kind of what we've got here in a theological snapshot of what took place in the lives of the disciples, apostles actually, and let's kind of click this over to the practical side and maybe venture into a formula for how to discover the will of God in perhaps a tight spot. Have you ever survived a tight spot in life where you didn't know what to do or have you always known what to do every day at all times? No, that's most of the time is when we don't know what to do, right? Well, just analyzing what we, the, the episode we've just watched. First, among the disciples, there was a general leading of Scripture. That's where the, right out of the gate, what does Peter say first? It had to happen this way because Scripture prophesied it. So we're we're not completely at a loss. We've got something to say. And not only that, we need to replace this office. So among their prayer, their being together, it seems as if they were studying their Bibles as well. And it's, it's not outside the realm of possibilities that Jesus gave them some pointers about this in the 40 days that he spent with them before he ascended into heaven. 
But there's a general leading of Scripture to begin with. Second, and this is the most subjective of all, they use their common sense. You can hear them reasoning in here. That's Peter's next stage. That if a replacement is to have the same apostolic ministry, he must have the same qualifications. So if we've all had this, including Judas who's gone, then this replacement will need to be an eyewitness and have his own personal appointment. And we'll address that with the casting of lots, which they will never do again. And then third, any of you ahead of me? They prayed together. They'd already been praying. The whole chapter seems to be bathed. Ten days worth of prayer meeting. And who are they praying to? It's very specific. The God who has knowledge of hearts which they admit they lack. Lord, we don't know this stuff, but you do. So what you have is scripture, common sense, and prayer as the method by which these apostles chose to determine a way forward. I think that's good stuff. Does the Bible give us any help, specifically Scripture, chapter and verse, for what to do during a global pandemic? I didn't find it. And we looked, didn't we? But the Bible says an awful lot about how to treat one another. The Bible is very clear in what it expects of us to do if we can at all do it as far as the church in that context. So we did have somewhere to start with Scripture. And then there was a whole stage of getting people within this body that God gifted with experience and ability to think through things linearly abstractly perhaps from business health care officials law enforcement fire department did all those opinions come together exactly no there was some diversity in those opinions but a time of weighing out well if you do this well if you do that well, if we don't do anything at all what if we don't say anything at all what if we say this well we need to say this if we're going to say that and on and on and on and on and then the constant reminder, we've got to pray through this. Got to pray through this. We don't know what to do. God knows what to do. History will tell us if we were right or wrong. We got our Bibles. We got each other. And we can pray. And I think we got through it. Did we aggravate each other? Yeah. Did we test each other's patience? Did we hurt each other's feelings? Inevitably, I think we did. But we're still together. Families do that too. These men would do that. But if we stick with this type of formula, we'll get through it because there's more going on than just our opinions. We've got an ancient book that's inscripturated revelation of God, and we've got prayer, which is our connection through the Holy Spirit to the throne of God. We'll get through it. And then finally, one thing that I think is glaring in this passage and it should be said this passage demonstrates that God's word will get its witness because you might just I mean if you're trying to make 
a series here that the masses will watch, subscribe to. You know, I could see where a publisher, and I'm trying to run this through our culture of entertainment, would say, Luke, leave that stuff out. Maybe not you know, the hanging and bursting part. That's interesting. We'll figure out a way to flash that in there. But Judas was, was y'all's goof up. I mean, just forget about that. It's bad PR. It looks like y'all don't know what you're doing. Okay? Think of it that way. Maybe it would be helpful to think from the perspective of these guys. And we don't have churches. They're not all over America because that's not been discovered. In fact, all that you've ever known is temples and synagogues and exile and Abraham and Moses. And then all of a sudden you've got this Messiah who looks as if he might be the, prof- the prophesied Messiah. You watch him die. He's buried and then he's alive again. And say you're interviewing one of these guys and you sit down and he's telling you what happened. So we start out with a church of about 120 people. And for that church, there's 12 elders which is pretty good uh, elder-to-member ratio. you 10 to 1 there. And then let's say that one of those elders decides he's not just going to mount a smear campaign against the lead pastor, but actually orchestrates his murder. Your pastor is dead now. And to top it all off, the elder who put that into motion has gone out and hanged himself. Now, if, if you're grading this by, say, some of the church growth gurus, how healthy would you say this church is? How long is it likely to last? Could it ever recover? How about it's still going 2,000 years later? Judas could not stop this train no more than you or I could. God's word is going to get its witness. And just the sheer academic exercise of counting the collection of all the fragments and copies of these 12 guys. Some of them, we don't even know where their stuff is. We don't hear about Matthias again or what he wrote. But we do know so many of the others. And it's thousands upon thousands. And and the copies and the variances are so pure. It's a, it's a miracle what it is that we've got this testimony as clearly as we do. But what we're talking about is the church of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, built on the foundation of these apostles and the prophets. And sometimes a good dose of, of God's word will get his witness is just what's necessary to counteract the thing that kind of crops up in our discussions of missions from time to time, that when we're done and we've beat all the bushes and we've said all that needs to be said, it almost sounds like God is needy and we are heroic. It's backwards than that. The truth is, sometimes, before we ever get to that point, God is calling us to wait and to pray and to watch 
and then they get busy. But the really good stuff starts with a waiting period and a praying period and a watching what God is doing period and then a getting involved in what he's already doing rather than some of the stuff that's really just built by people for some reason, probably bordering on sin, if not outright. So with that episode at a conclusion, the stage is set for Pentecost. There's only one thing missing, and that's the Holy Spirit. The place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, Matthias, and the place left vacant, vac- vacant by Jesus has not been filled by the Holy Spirit. But there are rumblings of a mighty rushing wind. And we'll have to wait. Same time, same schedule. It's coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a Sunday in September for beautiful weather for a beautiful place to sit and to meet for the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ but more than all that for the unstoppable witness of the good news of Jesus Christ the name above every name but the Jesus that saves Lord may we just patiently wait and pray and watch as you show us what it is you want done, how you want these things done. Lord, that you would prompt our movement, that you would send us into remote locations or down the street or down the stairs to the breakfast table to share what you've given to us in order that others might give it to still others. Lord, thank you for the truth of these words. And Lord, may they change in our mind and in our heart and our head the way we respond to others, the way we are obedient to you. And Lord, would you so see fit to use us in your kingdom. Lord, would you save some people, perhaps in this room, who will look back years from now and say, I understood Jesus when we studied our way through the book of Acts. It came to life, and I believed. Lord, we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.